Adults, of course, will be in here with me. Praise the Lord. Okay, Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. If you have it, say praise the Lord. We're going to look at a time the church is fixing to go into a major crisis. They have been persecuted. One of them has been martyred, Stephen by name. But probably the greatest crisis of the church up to this point in the book of Acts will take place because the shift of persecution is now going to come upon the apostles. Okay? So let's look in Acts 11 and verse 26. We know that Barnabas has gone down to Tarsus to look for Saul, who's been away for about 14 years. And verse 26, when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, because there, of course, is a huge revival taking place in Antioch. Jews and Gentiles mixed there in Antioch in the body of Christ, a huge revival taking place there in Antioch of Syria. This is known as dirty Antioch because of the immorality that was there. So anyway, verse 26, He found him, brought him unto Antioch. It came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. So we have Barnabas and we have Saul teaching here the disciples in Antioch who have just recently come into the church. Now you can imagine the challenge that that would be. Because these people, these believers have come into the church. It's completely brand new to them, everything that they're experiencing. So they need somebody to teach them the Word of God. So Saul of Tarsus and Barnabas are going to be responsible for them being taught there in Antioch. Verse 27, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Alright? If you look at verse 26, the Bible tells us not only did they teach the people, but there in Antioch is where Christians are first called by that title Christian. Okay, you there? Okay. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And then we got this prophet Agabus here that comes from Jerusalem. And he prophesies there's going to be a huge famine in the land. And it did come to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Verse 29. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, Acts 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. Alright, and at that point they cast Peter into prison, preparing to kill him as well. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. We ask your blessing to be upon the reading of Your Holy Word. We thank You for Your Spirit, Your anointing, Your awesome presence. We give You glory for the Word of God that we'll hear today. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Okay, let me give you the background up to this point. In Acts chapter 10 last week, we saw the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God. 
So now we've got something very unique. We have Jews and Gentiles worshiping together in the same church. Now this is going to create great conflict. Remember back in the days of the Apostle Paul or Saul, persecuting the church of the living God, Stephen being stoned to death. And at that point, the church is scattered throughout the world. How many of y'all remember that? That dispersion of the church throughout the world. Okay, because of why? The persecution. You remember that? The Apostle Paul, having been converted to the faith himself, goes over to Tarsus and Galatians tells us that he was there for 14 years. So Saul is sort of out of the picture at this point. Correct? In the 10th and 11th chapter, then we see in these chapters and also the latter part of this chapter 11, even Antioch coming into the church. So Gentiles are coming into the fellowship. Are you all here with me so far? So for about 14 years, the persecution has subsided so that the Jews, the religious Jews in Jerusalem, pretty much have come to the conclusion that we're just going to let this thing be. We're not going to try to persecute anymore. Y'all with me so far? No, Saul was a real instigator of persecution, but now he's gone. He's in Tarsus. And so the Bible tells us the church has had rest. Are y'all with me? I'm trying to, t- I'm trying to bring you to a place here. Okay, so for 14 years, basically, the religious leaders of Jerusalem are saying, just let the church be. We'll, we'll let them, sister. Yeah, thank you. Let the church be. We'll just kind of just let them be a, a part of, maybe we'll make them a sect of Judaism. Alright? Even though they're not a sect of Judaism, we're still just going to let them be and sort of get swallowed up into Jerusalem. Correct? So that persecution then from religious Jews against the church of the living God has subsided just a little bit and they're willing to just let it exist in Jerusalem without persecuting the church. But when the Gentiles come into the church and Jews and Gentiles begin to fellowship with each other in the same body and the Gentiles have not become Jews. Now remember we talked about how the Jews looked at Gentiles last week? They have no fellowship with Gentiles. For a Jew to even touch a Gentile, somebody from another nation other than Israel, for them to even touch a Jew in the marketplace, they would become unclean. And they would go and wash themselves, take a bath and wash their clothes. Okay, Because to them the Jews were nothing more than, I mean the Gentiles were nothing more than dogs. So they would not fellowship, a Jew would not fellowship with a Gentile. Because they believed it would make them unclean. So therefore, obviously, they would not go into a Gentile's home because they went into, if they went into a Gentile's home, they would possibly be exposed to unclean meats. Right? And a Gentile wouldn't be allowed to come into a Jewish home. So there was a real prejudice going on between the Jews and the Gentiles in that day. Now all of a sudden in the church of the living God, the church of Jesus Christ, you've got Jews and Gentiles in the same body. The Gentiles have come into the church. The Gentiles have been born again of the water and the Spirit. The Gentiles have been baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues. Therefore now they are part of the body of Jesus Christ and they're coming into that church without becoming a Jew. 
Do you see this? So the Jews, the religious Jews, who are not a part of the church in Jerusalem, who up to this point are willing to just let the church be, now this creates a problem for them. Okay? Um, this is something that they can't handle. They can't handle the idea or the thought of Gentiles and Jews worshiping together side by side in the church without the Gentiles becoming a Jew. And Peter, who was a Jew of Jews, was the apostle who allowed Gentiles to come into his house and was the man who preached to the Gentiles. And through his preaching, this Jew of Jews, Peter, brought the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. And so this was more than the Jews of Jerusalem could take. They could not handle this idea of Gentiles coming in and worshiping together with Jews in the same body without becoming Jews. This was more than they could take. So are you with me so far? So at this point now, persecution is going to break out on the church again. Alright? And it's going to come from basically the religious or the civil authority, political authority, Herod. But before we get into that, let me look at verse 26. The Bible tells us over there in Antioch, this huge revival is taking place, 1126 in Antioch. In Antioch, you have Gentiles. This is dirty Antioch. There's an Antioch in Syria and there's an Antioch in Asia Minor. This is dirty Antioch. This is Antioch that's located in Syria. And the reason why it's called dirty Antioch because it was full of immorality. Now, the Gentiles that lived in Antioch worshipped pagan gods. And in the worship of their pagan gods, they had temple prostitutes, male and female, that they worshipped their pagan gods in uh, they, sexual immorality. This is the way they worshipped their pagan gods, was sexual immorality with these temple priests and priestesses. Okay? So it's called dirty Antioch. A part of their religion in Antioch was for them to be immoral. That was a part of their religious practice. Sexual immorality outside of marriage and with the temple prostitutes, etc., etc. That was a part of their worship. So it's called Dirty Antioch. Now all of a sudden, the revival's moving over into Antioch, Dirty Antioch, and Jews and Gentiles are coming in the church. Amen? And Barnabas goes to Tarsus after 14 years and gets Saul and brings him down so he can teach them because Saul is a Hellenistic Jew. Saul is not a Jerusalem Jew. Saul is a Hellenistic Jew. That means that he's a Greek-speaking Jew. And he's the perfect man for the job to come in and to teach these brand new converts okay, about the Word of God made up of Jews and Gentiles. So the Scripture says, as we have now, a mingling of Jews and Gentiles in the church, one body of Christ. In your mind, think this way. You have the pagan Greeks of Antioch. You have unbelieving Jews in Antioch. You have believing Jews and, and believing Gentiles in the body of Christ. And they're in the marketplace. And they're spreading the gospel everywhere they go, right? And the pagans, the pagan Gentiles in the marketplace, and the unbelieving Jews in the marketplace, take note of these Christians, okay, these believers. Up to this point, they have been called the people of the way. Or the Nazareans. 
the ones who followed Jesus the Nazarene. Okay? But now, as they're mingling in Antioch, the pagans or the Greeks in Antioch look at these people and they say, these are Christians. They did not call themselves Christians. The pagans in Antioch called them Christians. And it was a term of ridicule. It was a term of mockery. They laughed at these Christians. These Christians. Who are these Christians? Well, the pagans in their mind thought that when these Christians were in the marketplace claiming to be followers of Christ, that Christ was the name of a person. Okay? So they said these are Christians, are Christianos. Christianos is a very unique term because it's connected with Greek, a Greek word and a Latin word. Alright? Christ, Christos is a Greek word. Ianos is connected to a Latin term. So Christianos is the word that we get Christian from. It's a combination of a Greek word and a Latin word. Christianos. So as they saw these believers baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, they were so unique in their ways. They were unique in their lifestyle. They were uh, followers of Jesus Christ. So they said, then these are Christians. These are followers of a man named Christ. You understand? That was their thinking. Or they said, these people are slaves of Christ. A man named Christ. Christ, Ianos, Ianos, slave. These are the slaves of a man named Christ. So they called them Christians or Christianos, the followers of a man named Christ, or slaves of a man named Christ. Are y'all with me right now? Take your first name and put Ianos to it. Then you would have people that maybe followed you, they would call you, uh, if it was Jennifer, then it would be Jennifer Ionios. They would say, these are the followers of Jennifer, or the slaves of Jennifer. Do you understand what I'm trying to show you here? So when they saw these believers in Antioch, then the pagans called them Christianos. These are the slaves of a man named Christ. Are the followers of a man named Christ. Now, Christ is not a name of Jesus. Christ is His office. Jesus is His name. But Christ is His office. Christ coming from Christos, the Hebrew word, Mashiach or Messiah. He's Jesus the Messiah, the Mashiach, or Jesus the Christ. The Christ or Messiah is His office. Jesus is His name. But the pagans thought that Christ was His last name. And they said, these are the slaves of a man named Christ, Christianos, okay? But they didn't understand that Christ was His office and Jesus was His name. That He was the Messiah, the Christ of God, right? Now in the Old Testament, there were prophet, priest, and king. They were known as Christ. They were not known as the Christ, there's only one the Christ or one the Messiah. Jesus is His name. 
But if you were anointed in the Old Testament, they said you were Christed because the word Christ or Messiah means anointed. So a prophet was Christed. A priest was Christed. A king was Christed or anointed, but they weren't the Christ. They weren't the Messiah. So when they saw these believers then walking around, they said these are the followers of the Christ or the slaves of the Christ. In their mind, they are the ones who are servants of this man Christ, but it also could mean that they believe these people are the Christed ones. That means these people are the ones who are anointed. They are anointed by God. They are anointed by the Spirit of Jesus, so they are the Christed ones. They're not the Christ, but they're the Christed ones. I can tell you today that if you're filled with the Holy Ghost this morning, you are the Christed ones. You are the anointed ones of God. You have been plunged into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You have been put into the life of His Spirit. You have been filled with the Spirit of Jesus, with the evidence of speaking with other tongues. This is not some strange thing. This is not some spooky thing. This is the ways of God. This is His New Testament church. So as the pagans saw these believers, these anointed ones, these Christed ones, walking around with supernatural power, signs and miracles and wonders taking place. When they saw them, they could have called them Christians because these are the anointed ones. These are the Christed ones. So we call them Christians. So two possible reasons why the Christian was called Christian was that they were the slaves of Jesus the Christ or they are the Christed ones, the anointed ones. Up to this point, they had been called the people of the way because Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. They had been called the sect of the Nazarenes. Christian was not a term that they called themselves. Christian was a term that was given to them by pagans who were mocking them and laughing at their way of worship. Give the Lord praise in the house. They did not understand these very peculiar people. The way they worshiped, the way they praised Jesus. They praised an invisible Lord. They served an invisible God when they worshiped and when they sang. Who are they singing to? Who are they worshiping? And when they speak with tongues, this unknown language, what is that about? Where is that coming from? So to the pagans, this group of people, they were very strange, very different. They didn't observe the pagan celebrations like the rest of them did. And they, are y'all with me so far? So, this very unique body of believers made up of Jews and Gentiles, they said, well, these are the Christ when they were said laughingly mocking them, making fun of them. These are the Christians, you know. And if you go to Acts 26, you will see the Apostle Paul standing before Agrippa, Acts 26, 28. <clears throat> and the Apostle Paul is given his testimony um, why he is a servant of Jesus the Christ. And in this process, Agrippa sneeringly and mockingly uses this statement here. Acts 26, 28. 
Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian? You see, it wasn't like, you know, when we re- when you read it, you're almost you persuade me to be a Christian? No, it's not like that. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian? Kind of like that. It was a mocking, it was a sneer that was coming out of Agrippa. You're going to try to convert me to Christianity, Paul? Okay. It was a sneer. It was a mocking. Go to 1 Peter 4.16, the only other time in the New Testament that Christian is recorded. 1 Peter 4.16 and the epistle of Peter, the name Jesus Christ, Christ, or Jesus Christ is used over and over and over in the epistle of Peter. Because that term Christ to the pagan mind was a term of mockery. It was something to be made fun of. So Peter uses the term Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ or Christ over and over and over in his epistle when he writes to the persecuted church and those who are made fun of for serving the Christ. And so 1 Peter 4.16, Peter says it this way. He says, are y'all awake? Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. If they mock you, if they make fun of you, if they ridicule you, and you know, you're a Christian, you know, that kind of thing, a sneer in their voice, it says, well, don't worry about that. You glorify God. You glorify God. Amen. Give the Lord some praise. And the Apostle Peter is writing his letter to the church of Jesus Christ that's persecuted throughout the world. And people are making fun of these Christians. And so Peter even uses that term. He's letting us know it was still used as a term of ridicule and mockery even in his day. Say amen. So the term Christian was not something they called themselves by. I will say today that the Holy Ghost has put his mark on it. That there's nothing wrong with us being called Christians. I'm just letting you know the roots of it. The background of it is that it was a term that was coined by unbelieving pagans to mock and make fun of this very unique, anointed, spirit-baptized, Holy Ghost people who live very different from them and worship very different from them and worshiped an invisible God named Jesus the Christ. They thought He was His last name. Say Amen. So really, you know, we, we, we use the term Christians, and I'm a Christian, and you're a Christian, but really, uh, we are the people of the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We are the people of the way. It's a very unique way. And, and we show people the way. We show people the way. We show the people in the way of water baptism in Jesus' name. We show people the way to be filled with the Holy Ghost speaking with other tongues which is a part of salvation. We show them how to get into the kingdom. We show them the way to live for Jesus Christ. So you are the people of the way, and you show people how to live the right way and how to experience the way of forgiveness and the love of Jesus Christ and His salvation power. So really, we're more the people of the way than we are Christians in a mocking term. 
Now, you're Christed, you're anointed by God, and that's a good thing, but don't let anybody mock you and make fun of the fact that you are a Christian. I'm thankful to be a Christian today. So even though it was a term used by pagans in the early church, it still to me has the mark of the Holy Ghost upon it. Say praise the Lord. So with this in mind, then, with the Gentiles coming to church with the Jews and the pagans coining them and saying, these are the Christianos, these are the Christians, these are the Christed ones, these are the slaves of a man named Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, then we've got Paul and we've got Barnabas on the scene again, and they are teaching them how to live for the Lord once they have come into the kingdom. It's all brand new to them. They're used to going up to temples and worshiping pagan gods and, and being involved in, in immorality and all of that kind of lifestyle. This is brand new to them. They don't know how to worship God. They don't know how to live for the Lord. So they need somebody like Paul and Barnabas to teach them, and hence that's the background of the passage. Now, the latter part of Acts chapter 11, we have this man Agabus, who also has come down from Jerusalem, and he is a prophet and he begins to prophesy. The anointing of God begins to move, move through him. And as he prophesies, the Spirit of God reveals something that only God can know. And that is a famine is going to hit the world. There's going to be a worldwide famine. Now, worldwide famine, what we're talking about is the Roman world. The Roman world is going to be hit by a famine, said Agabus the prophet. He begins to prophesy. He begins to foretell the future, which basically is a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom from God telling him something that only God can know. And as he's standing there in their midst, the Spirit of God begins to speak to that church and God tells them through this man, Jesus tells them through this man, something he could not have known if God did not tell him. It was something only God knew. And so as he's standing there, he begins to prophesy, there's going to be a dearth or a famine that's going to hit the land. And the Bible says it did come to pass in the days of Claudius, the Roman emperor. Say amen. Now, so prophecy is still here today. God can move through somebody. They can speak something that they don't know is going to happen, but God knows it's going to happen. And as God reveals it to them, they speak it. That's a foretelling. It's a prophecy that something's going to happen. It's by the Spirit of God. It's not the man. The man doesn't have the ability to do that. It's God speaking through the man. He's anointed. He's Christed. To speak that way. He's in the office of the prophet. So we've already seen here, we have the mantle of an apostle in Antioch, and we've got the mantle of a prophet here in Antioch. It's got the supernatural markings all over it. There is a powerful move of God taking place here. Signs, miracles, and wonders, and then prophecy taking place. Prophecy, though, is not just foretelling the future. Prophecy, when a man has a prophetic gifting, he's anointed to foretell. Foretelling is speaking something and telling something that hasn't happened yet and revealing that it will happen. Foretelling is simply preaching the Word of God under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Say Amen. 
I don't claim to be a prophet, but when I preach and the anointing is there to preach, there is a prophetic aspect to that preaching because it's taking the Word of God and applying it to your life today. It's taking something that happened thousands of years ago and under the anointing applying it to your life today. That is prophecy. So you don't have to always be walking around predicting the future to be a prophet in the New Testament. To be a prophet in the New Testament simply means to foretell who or declare the Word of God, something that's already happened, but bring it into application for today. Do you understand that? So the offices of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, they're all still in the church today. Sometimes the prophet speaks something that's going to happen in the future. That's foretelling. Sometimes he just preaches the Word of God and applies what is in the Word of God to the present. That's foretelling. Okay, so don't be confused about the office of a prophet. So as a result of Agabus standing up there and foretelling of the future, Amen, the Bible tells us that there is an effort, a concerted effort, to take up offerings throughout the world to take back to the church in Jerusalem. Because the church in Jerusalem, remember, has given everything away. So because they have given everything away, it's created a problem here. The problem is now they don't have enough food to eat, and there's some of them could possibly starve to death. So we have Paul and Barnabas is put in charge of the offerings that are taken out throughout the world and then brought back to the home church, Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Today, most of the time, there are churches who support missions. But in this context, we have missionary churches supporting the home church. Okay? Say praise the Lord. So a lot of the things we do, you know, in churchianity today is just the opposite of what they did then. It was the missionary churches supporting the home church. Now we have home churches supporting the missionary works. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just telling you so you'll know the Word of God that in the early church it was just the opposite. The missionary churches supported the home church. And the reason why is because just as the prophet Agabus prophesied, there was a famine that hit the land and it affected Jerusalem big time, the church in Jerusalem. So to take care of our starving you know, brothers and sisters... They needed to take up the offering, and this they did. Say amen. Amen. All right, so you got the background now. You ready? Let's go to chapter 12 then. Verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. Herod the king where? Herod is a king in Jerusalem. Now keep this in mind, you have this work going over on in Antioch of Syria, right? This revival that's taking place there in Syria will become eventually the home base for missions work. But at the same time, now we're going to shift back to Jerusalem. Okay? We're shifting back to Jerusalem now. And remember during the times of the persecution, Stephen, who was a Greek-speaking Jew, a Hellenistic Jew, a Hellenistic Jew was a man who was dispersed who lived outside of Jerusalem. You with me so far? Whenever that persecution of Stephen takes place, he's killed and the Christians are scattered throughout the world. Who stayed in Jerusalem? 
the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Why? Because the Jewish apostles were more Jewish than the Hellenistic Jews. The Jewish apostles were still going up to the temple. The Jewish apostles, are y'all with me so far? The persecution is not so heavy on them because they're not that Hellenistic group. You understand? They're more Jewish in their approach. Even though they're in the church, they're still Jewish. Now I really, boy, this gets difficult sometimes because you need to understand that even in that early church, the Jerusalem Jews in the church, there was a way that they worshiped God. They kept going up to the temple. You with me? But then Paul comes along. Are y'all with me so far? And he's got a group and he's telling these Gentiles, you don't have to become a Jew. He's telling these Gentiles, you don't have to observe the feast of the Lord. He's telling these Gentiles, you don't need to observe the Sabbath. He's telling these Gentiles, you don't need to be circumcised. But that Jewish church in Jerusalem is basically saying, well, you go ahead and you keep going up to the temple if you want to, and you keep, etc., etc. Are y'all with me so far? You keep observing the Sabbath day if you want to. You keep observing the feast if you want to, because you're Jewish believers. But Paul is reaching Gentile believers, and he's telling you, you, you don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to do all of these things. So even in that day, you've got the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers in the same body. But you've got two different groups. You've got James's group, the Jerusalem believers, and you've got the Gentile believers throughout the world. And then you've got some that's underneath Peter, and Peter's flipping flopping. He don't know where he stands. No, I'm honest with you. Peter's flip-flopping. I mean, he was Jew through and through, and God had to send him a vision to get him to go preach to the Gentiles. You with me? And even after he preached to the Gentiles in Galatians, the Bible tells us, huh, are y'all with me? Peter flip-flops. In Galatians, the Bible tells us that Peter's over there eating with the Gentiles. And here comes some men from James's church in Jerusalem. You know, the Jerusalem Jews that are in the church in, from Jerusalem. Oh, they're, they're the, more the Phariseistic uh, believer. The Phariseistic Christians, they have come down and uh, they have found Peter eating with Gentiles. Oh, well, there's, that's good. That's good. That's God, you know. But whenever James sends his company down, these are Jerusalem believers. This is James's group, you know. And when Peter finds out that James's group has come down, he gets up from the Gentile table and he walks over and sits down with the Jews. And Paul jumps on his case. Even though Paul was a believer after Peter. Peter was in the church before Paul. Paul jumps on his case for flip-flopping like that. So I'm just trying to give you some understanding here that the Jewish church under James was still Jewish through and through, right? That's why Peter had to go up and explain to that church how the Gentiles came into the church. They said, yeah, that's good, praise God. But we're still Jewish believers over here in Jerusalem. So Peter had to go and explain how the Gentiles came to the Jerusalem church, right? And old Paul's over here, he's got his group and they're not being circumcised. They're not keeping the Sabbath day. They're not keeping the feast because they're Gentiles and that's not required of them. And then Peter's group, he don't know where he stands. 
He just knows that he was used by God to bring the Gentiles in, right? But when James's company comes down from Jerusalem, Peter's sitting over with the Gentiles eating. Oh, James's group. Mm. He gets up and sits down with the Jews. So he really didn't know where he was. He just flip-flopping back and forth. So you need to realize that this great, this, this, even though we're talking about the church here, there were still some kind of, you know, differences in the way the Jews worshiped Jesus Christ and their practices versus the Gentiles when they were coming in, even though they were in the same body. The Jerusalem Jews that were believers in Jerusalem, they had a certain way. The Gentiles under Paul, they had a certain way. But the main thing, they were all baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, speak with other tongues. But they just, they had certain practices, Jewish practices, that the Gentiles weren't keeping. Does that make sense? And as I said, Peter's group, if he had a group, they don't know where they are. And I'm being honest with you today, okay? I'll preach to some of you. You are, you're not Jewish, uh, you know, but some of you think you need to keep the Sabbath day. Okay, uh, you're not Jewish, but some of you think that you need to keep the feast of the Lord. And, and you know, some of you are not Jewish, but you're still getting circumcised. Oh, boy, it's getting quiet in here, isn't it? See, so don't look at me. Some of you don't have a clue where you are. I know where I am. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know, and I'm going to preach you the Word of God and tell you that you're in New Covenant days. And that, thank God, uh, can you imagine... Walking up to these men in Antioch, these Gentile believers who've just been baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, speak with other tongues, and walking up to these men and telling them, in order for you to be saved, we need to take you and circumcise you right now. Thank God, Paul said, don't worry about physical circumcision. Oh, don't be so stoic. Are y'all hearing me now? Thank God for Paul. Thank God for Barnabas. Seeing the grace of God, you know. that the Gentiles are really a part of the church. They didn't have to become Jews. They didn't have to be circumcised. And the, you know, the Gentile believers stand up praising God the whole time Paul's preaching. We don't have to become a Jew. We don't have to be circumcised. Yay, Paul! Yay, preach! You understand what I'm telling you? So anyway, I'm trying to shift you back now from Antioch. I'm trying to shift you back to Jerusalem. The apostles are still in Jerusalem. Peter's in Jerusalem. James and John, they're in Jerusalem. These are the Jerusalem believers, right? Jerusalem believers. Wow. Very special believers. Now, I'm not putting them down. I'm just telling you. There was prejudice there. And because the Gentiles are coming in the church and then the same body with a Jew sitting on the same pew. This was more than the Jewish unbelievers could handle. And the persecution is going to start back up again. But at this point, it's not just upon the believer, the church believer, but now something different. Now persecution is going to hit the apostles. Now the church is fixing to go into a crisis because the church is at a stage where it could begin to lose its leadership. If it loses its leaders, the church is over. It's done. Did you catch me? 
What are you going to do if all the apostles are killed? What is the church going to do if all the apostles are killed? All the leadership of the church, what is it going to do if it's all killed? The church is in a major crisis right now. Okay? So we're shifting back to Jerusalem and there's a man by the name of Herod. He is made king in Jerusalem. We have shifted governing ways now. It used to be under Pontius Pilate, a procurator. He was set, he was a Gentile, Roman Gentile leader that was placed by Rome over Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate, right? The procurator. But now the government has changed. Claudius, before Claudius, the emperor of Rome, there is Caligula. Caligula followed by Claudius are friends of Herod. They take Caligula and Claudius. Claudius 41 to 44 BC is where we are in the time frame here. So we're about 10 to 15 years after Pentecost. 10 to 15 years after the beginning of the church. Caligula and Claudius put Herod in power as a king over Jerusalem. So now Jerusalem has a king again. But this man, Herod, is half Edomite and half Jew. Watch what I'm telling you here. Now listen, this is amazing to me. He is the king over Jerusalem placed by Claudius uh, and Caligula, Roman emperors. Now, who is this Herod? How many of you have heard of Herod before? There was a Herod named Herod the Great who tried to kill baby Jesus when he was born. Herod the Great is not the Herod of this passage. Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill baby Jesus, is dead and gone. This Herod here is Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus. And he is the nephew of Herod Antipas, the man who cut John the Baptist's head off. Did you catch it? The grandson of Herod the Great who tried to kill baby Jesus and the nephew of Herod Antipas, the man who cut the head of John the Baptist off. This Herod, Herod Agrippa I, is in power. The time that James dies and and the time that he's in power here is between 41 and 44 A.D. So you know Herod's, or that's not his name, Herod is is his office, he's a king. He's of a dynasty. Herod the Great was his grandfather, tried to kill baby Jesus. Herod Antipas, his uncle, killed John the Baptist by beheading. So these Herods are ruthless. They are cruel and full of cruelty. This Herod, the grandson of Herod the Great and the nephew of Herod Antipas, the one who beheaded John, this Herod is half Edomite, which means he is a descendant of Esau, the brother of Jacob. Half Edomite, he's got the blood of Esau in his veins. And also, his mother or his grandmother 
was a Hasmonean queen way back in the days of the Maccabees before the Gospel of Matthew during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and etc. etc. When Alexander divided his kingdom into four uh, provinces and put a, a ruler or a general over those four provinces. Provinces. There was the Maccabees who rose up against the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. These Maccabees were purist. They loved the law of God and they were pure for God. And they were trying to overthrow the, Mac, uh, the Antiochus Epiphanes apostasy. So anyway, to make a long story short, this Herod, the grandson of Herod the Great, and the nephew of Herod Antipas, the one who had John the Baptist killed, this Herod right here, his grandmother was a Hasmonean queen. Which means his grandmother and even possibly his mother were Jewish. Of that very pure set called the Maccabees. So on one hand, his father Aristobulus and his mother or grandmother, this Hasmonean queen, you've got Esau blood in him and you've got Jewish blood in him. He's the king over Jerusalem. So the Jews in Jerusalem, I'm talking about the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem, they don't know what to do with this fellow because they hate the Esau blood that's in him, but they love the Jewish blood that's in him that he got from his grandmother and mother who was a Hasmonean queen. They don't know what to do with this guy, right? So anyway, he's the king at this time, and he doesn't have a lot of popularity with the Jews because of his mixture here with that Esau blood in him. So in order to get political favor, we have persecution hit the church again. But it's now upon the leaders of the church so in verse 1 of chapter 12, it's this Herod. About that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to fix certain of the church. I told you that you really need another chapter or two beyond Acts to get into the heavy political persecution of the church. Where Rome starts feeding the Christians to lions, etc., etc. You need other chapters beyond the book of Acts. But in this chapter, you have a little pocket of persecution by a political leader named Herod. Herod seeks to vex certain of the church. Verse 2, And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now look at that. That's basically all it says. He just killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. That's it. But I don't think that we should pass over it that quickly. The, the, the Bible gives it one verse. But I need to tell you who this James is. This James, as the Bible says, is the brother of John. He's the older brother of John. Peter, James, and John. James and John, the sons of thunder. James and John, the sons of, sons of Zebedee. James and John, the fishermen, the disciples that walked with Jesus when He was on this earth. This is the James we're talking about. This is the older brother of John. He was one of the inner circle disciples of Jesus Christ when He walked the earth. You decide, you divide, Jesus divided His disciples. He put Peter, James and John and Andrew. Peter would have been the head over those three. 
And then you jump to the next group. The fifth one would have been a head over the next. And then the ninth one would have been the head over the next group. So Jesus set them up like a military squadron. So the first group, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, that first group, they were very important to Jesus Christ. He set them up, alright? Peter, you're over these, and so you're really the most important disciple that Jesus had, Peter is. And then you got James and John. Just under Peter is James, the brother, the older brother of John, and then you have Andrew. They're in that first group. So when the Bible tells us that this Herod, this half-Edomite, half-Jewish man is king, he kills James, the brother of John. We're talking about one of Jesus' inner circles. One of his most important disciples, an apostle. James becomes the first apostle that is martyred in the New Testament church. Stephen was not an apostle. He was the first martyr, but James is the first apostle that's martyred. Say amen. So James, a part of that inner circle whose brother is John, his life is cut short. Did you catch that? You're talking about a very important man in the church of the living God. You're talking about an apostle, one that was in the inner circle of Jesus Christ, a disciple of the Lord Jesus when he walked this earth. You're talking about a very, very, very important man who God allows to be killed and taken off of the scene from church work. Did you catch that? Who's in control here? Is God in control or is Herod, Antip uh, Herod uh, Agrippa I, is he in control or is God in control? How could this possibly be? Why would God allow this man James, the brother of John, not the pastor of the New Testament church in Jerusalem, James, not the James that's the half-brother of Jesus, but the James that's the brother of John, a disciple of Jesus Christ? and an apostle in the church. How could this glorify Jesus Christ? How could this glorify God by allowing this man to be cut off in the prime of his life? A man who walked with Jesus when Jesus walked the earth. A man who saw Jesus' death, burial, and was a witness to His resurrection. A man that was at the top of Jesus' disciples is allowed to be killed by a wicked, evil, pagan king. Why did this happen? Is God out of control? Is Herod Agrippa one is he in charge? Why would this be allowed to happen? This man be cut off in the prime of his life, in the prime of his life, at the very beginning of, of church work. Who knows what he could have done if he was allowed to remain alive on this earth, but God allows him to be killed by a wicked man. It doesn't make sense. And some of you maybe have come across situations and it doesn't make sense to you. Why would God allow this to happen? Or why would God allow that to happen? Especially when you're talking about a disciple, an apostle. Why would God allow that? I don't understand this. It seems like God is out of control. It seems like Herod has more control than God himself. Do you understand? 
Have you ever gone through things in your life you say, why would God allow this to happen? Well, sometimes, church, there's just no answer. We don't know why God would allow one of His inner circles, the brother of John himself, James killed at the prime of his life, John allowed to live till he'll be almost a hundred years of age. John, the one who wrote the book of Revelation, lived longer than all the apostles. But his brother, his elder brother, is killed at the beginning of the church. And John is allowed to live. At the time that you would think that you would need that man more than ever, God says, I'm allowing to be taken out. So sometimes you sit down and you look at life and you say, hmm, I don't understand why this happened to me or why this happened to this person or whatever. And you can't figure it out. You try to figure it out. But the Bible tells us you know in part. We don't know the reason for everything. We just know in part. I don't know why God allowed this to happen. I will tell you that God was in control of it. But you say, well, pastor, how could God be in control of that and let that man die? I'm going to prove it to you by the Word of God. God was in control of the whole thing. When that wicked man took that, that apostle James and beheaded him with the sword, God was in control. It wasn't Herod that was in control. God was in control in His sovereignty. In God's sovereignty, He allowed this man to die. In His sovereignty, He will deliver Peter out of prison facing death. Why would He get Peter out of prison and save him from death, but allow James, the brother of John, to be killed? The sovereignty of God. He is in control. You won't, ever, you won't be able to figure out everything. Why this? Why that? You just have to learn to walk with God and have to learn to trust God and to walk by faith. I'll be honest with you today. I do know what I don't know what's going to happen to you. I don't even know what's going to happen to me. You hear what I'm telling you? God could allow you to be cut off in the prime of your life. God could allow me to be cut off in the prime of my life. Not maybe not physically, but I could experience something in my life that would completely take me out of what I'm doing right now. And you sit there and say, God, why would you allow that? That's the sovereignty of God and it's the providence of God and sometimes you cannot understand it, but God is in control. I said God is in control of everything that is happening. What I'm telling you today is that good things happen or bad things happen to good people and you don't understand why. You can't figure it out. Why a wicked king would be allowed to do this. Say amen. Amen. So I didn't want to just jump over that verse, you know. Because the church is in a crisis. It's not just a Stephen where he was important. And it's not just believers that are dying for Jesus Christ. You've got an apostle now. You've got a disciple that's been beheaded by the sword of a wicked king named Herod. Runs in Herod's family. Herod Antipas had John the Baptist's head cut off. Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus Christ. These Herods are standing up against Jesus Christ. These Herods are fighting the Christ of God. They're fighting Jesus Christ. They're fighting the church. They've killed an apostle. They've killed a disciple. Another Herod. And God is allowing him to stand up and do it. And not stopping him. 
not stopping. At that point, when Herod sees that this brings the approval or the pleasure of the Jews, ah, I like this. I'm getting political power here. I'm getting voting power here. He's a politician, you know. So I said, oh, I, oh, this is getting me favor with the Jews here in Jerusalem. So the Bible says he decides to take Peter. Eventually, if Herod would allow to continue, he would have killed every apostle he could find. He would have killed every one of them. You hear what I'm telling you? So he kills James, and so now he goes after Peter. You with me? Peter, James, and John. Got James, number two man, okay, of the disciples. Now we're going to go for the number one man. We're going to go for Peter, the apostle. Say praise the Lord. And so James, the Bible tells our, our Peter at this point, are y'all with me? Verse 3, because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. If your Bible says Easter, that is incorrect. It is the days of unleavened bread. It's the days of Passover. Okay? We don't celebrate Easter. Easter is a pagan goddess. Ishtar. Okay, so you know, I said, well, it's in the Bible. Easter's in the Bible. It's a mistranslation. Should be Passover. So anyway, Peter's taken during the days of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the week that follows Passover. And the Bible tells us, are y'all with me? Verse 4, He apprehended him, put him in prison, and delivered him to four quadrants of soldier to keep him intending after what? Easter to bring him forth to the people. That's a mistranslation. After Passover. After unleavened bread. His intention is to execute Peter after the Passover feast. Isn't that interesting? This man, by the way, was a man who tried to keep the law of God. He brought his tithes to the Lord. But yet he kills an apostle. You can bring your tithe to God and still kill an apostle. Herod tried to keep the law as a Jew. He tried to keep the law and he brought his tithes to the temple. Say amen. But yet, even though he's willing to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he's got the leaven of malice in his heart. Say amen. What was the Feast of Unleavened Bread? The Jews during the time of Passover celebration would go through their house and get rid of anything that was impure. Get rid of uh, any kind of leaven out of their house which spoke of corruption. Get rid of the corruption. Get rid of impurity. Get rid of the malice. But yet this man, observing the Feast of Passover Unleavened Bread, had malice in his heart. Killed the Apostle James. Now he's going after Peter. The execution day is set after after the Passover. So verse 5, we know where he is. Peter's in prison. He's got four, what is it, quatrain? Four quatrain of soldiers around him. Why do you put so many? Why do you put four quatrains? So that's 16 soldiers. 16 Roman soldiers for one apostolic preacher. 
What are you afraid of, Herod? Well, back there in Acts chapter 5, he got thrown in prison once before and walked free. So we got to put this man, we got to put Peter in chains. We'll put one soldier on one side of him and another soldier on another side of him. Chained to soldiers. We'll put 16 total soldiers. We'll put two soldiers at the inside of the gate or the prison door and two on the outside of the prison door and we'll put, you know, uh, two, two, add it all up, 16 more. We'll put two more here at this door and two more at this door and two more at this door and two more at this door and one on either side of him and two in the front of the gate of the prison door and two in the front, uh, on the inside of it and two on the outside of it. You got 16 soldiers to watch one apostolic preacher. What are you afraid of, Herod? Yeah, we know what happened back there in Acts chapter 5. He got thrown in prison and he went out scot-free. So this is the setting, right? And you got multiple doors leading to the street. It's an impossible situation. You got 16 soldiers and multiple doors leading to the street out of the, out of the prison. And here Peter is in the prison. The word that's used there, prison in the English, literally means dwelling place. God made it a home for him. They called it a prison. They called it a jail. God said, I'm just giving you a place to live right now. I'll just give you a home, a dwelling place. Very unique term that's, that's translated uh, from the Greek term to prison here. Very unique term. It just simply means dwelling place. King James writer said it's a prison. But God said, it's just your place to dwell right now. Don't worry about it, Peter. And so there he is, and he's waiting for that execution day. And on execution night, the Bible says an angel comes and stands in the middle of the prison or the home he's living in. The angel is standing there in brilliant light. And I will tell you this, that angels still work today. I can tell you that God sent His angel to deliver Daniel. Daniel must have an angel that watched over him and protected him. Peter, the angel uh, there, could be an angel assigned to Peter for his protection. I do know there are angels that report to God anytime somebody abuses a little child. God, the angel that is over that little child's protection goes to God and protect or reports that abuse of that child directly to the throne of God Almighty. So it seems like the scripture, it, sometimes the term is used guardian angel. It seems like that there is scriptural, uh, foundation to believe that each one of you have an angel that protects you. I pray to God I got more than one. I need more than one. (laughs) So anyway, I'll just say I believe that this was the angel specifically designated to protect Peter. Just like Daniel had his and, and a child has theirs. Amen. And so I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us as an angel walks with you from birth all the way till you die. I don't know, but that's possible. There's a sign from God for you to protect you. So anyway, oh, that helps me today. 
I do know the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that they are ministering spirits sent to them that are the heirs of salvation. And if you're a born-again believer, then you know you've got angels that are sent to you because you are an heir of salvation. There's an angel that walks with every one of you protecting you because you're an heir of salvation. And so now, Peter, in an impossible situation, the angel of God appears to him in the midst of his prison cell, in the midst of brilliant light. And Peter is asleep. On execution night, he's asleep. What would you be doing if it was your execution night? You'd probably be standing up all night. Oh God, would you deliver me? See, James is dead. James was allowed to die for the faith. There's nothing that is telling Peter that he's not going to die the next morning. Or is there? But I can tell you one thing, he's sleeping, he's just, he's not wringing his hands, he's not worried, he's not losing sleep, he's not fearful of dying for Jesus tomorrow, you know, because the believer always lived with hope. You, you might ask today, you might, when you get to heaven, you might say, why did the Lord allow you, James, to die and deliver Peter? James said, God delivered me too right into his arms. See, it's all the way you look at it. See, if God allows me to die in the faith, I'm going straight into the arms of Jesus Christ. That's my hope. And that's my ultimate deliverance is to die and go straight into the arms of Jesus. That's an ultimate deliverance. Who got delivered, Peter or James? They both did. One died in the sovereignty of God and one was delivered in the sovereignty of God. But they were both delivered. See, that's what blew... Let me just... Y'all sit down. See, now, I don't need your help now. I I need your help at the beginning when I'm preaching and you're all just staring at me. I, I don't need your help now. I'm anointed now. Praise God. I need you to do the raw, raw at the beginning when I'm looking for God. You know what I'm talking about. Y'all got it all mixed up, all backwards. You do the raw, raw, when I don't need you to do the raw, raw. Do the raw, raw when I'm looking for God, man. I'm doing good now, praise the Lord. Both of them got delivered. That New Testament church, those born-again believers, when they were fed to the lions, they sang praises to Jesus Christ. That affected that pagan world greater than the miracles they saw. They saw miracles done by false spirits. So miracle, this is awesome, look what Jesus is doing. They saw that done by pagan spirits. False demon power. But when they saw a believer die the way they did, full of hope and full of joy and full of victory with worship and songs coming out. It blew their minds. Nobody dies like a believer. You get an unbeliever die, they die and you can hear them cussing and they're full of anger and full of bitterness and cussing this and cussing that, you know. But you get a believer who's full of hope, fixing to step into the arms of Jesus Christ. When they died, nobody ever died like a Christian. 
they died singing the praises of God because they were full of hope. They knew the next minute they were fixing to come into the arms of Jesus. James was delivered, but a different way. He died trusting the sovereignty of God. But Peter, anyway, going back to Peter, I had to throw that in for you. Peter, in the middle of the night, he's just sleeping there. He's not worried. He's not wringing his hands. He's not thinking about the speech he's going to give tomorrow. He's not full of fear and anxiety and troubled in heart and mind and losing sleep over the whole matter. He's asleep. Why is he asleep? Because of his hope. You got it. Because of his hope. Because he knows if he does die, he's going straight into the arms of Jesus. Facing, this is execution night. Facing his certain death, barring a miracle. This man is sleeping like a baby. What about you and me? What if you were put in prison right now and tomorrow is your death sentence and you've got to sleep through execution night? How would you handle it? Would you be awake all night worrying and fear and troubled in mind and heart and writing your speech? Or would you just go to sleep? Trust in the sovereignty of God. That God is in control. God is in control. Well, that's what Peter did. And the angel comes and he nudges Peter. I mean, this guy is so asleep that the angel has to basically strike him. Wake up, Peter! Let's just say he nudged him gently. Get up, Peter! <laughs> Did you catch an angel of God? Angels. You think, well, that was only then. No. I could tell you about material that has been written in modern history of men who were put in pits and prison who had angelic visitation come to them and deliver them out of those pits. Supernatural manifestations of God's angels to men helping them out of situations just like this in your day. Well, I haven't seen an angel, Pastor. Well, you haven't been thrown in prison ready to die tomorrow either. You're just worried about the bread you're going to eat tomorrow on your table, you know. Oh, yeah, you don't need an angel for that. Go buy it at the store. So anyway, Peter's fast asleep to the point that the angel has to nudge him. And they say, all right, arise, Peter, get up. Get your clothes, put your clothes on, get dressed. Put your sandals on your feet. You know, why do you got to tell him all this? If you got an angel appearing to you in the middle of your prison cell on execution night, that just woke you up. Oh, wow. And, oh, hey, by the way, as you're going out the door, grab your sandals, you're going to need them. Put your coat on too, because it's going to be cold outside, because we're going outside. And I have no clue as to what happened to those 16 soldiers. It doesn't say they went to sleep. It doesn't say they were asleep. It just, Peter and the angel just walked right by all of them. He went through the prison door. Uh, the prison, the door of his prison. He went through that. He kept on walking. He went through another door. He came to another door. And this huge door that led into the street opened of its own accord. 
all of a sudden the pins that were holding it shut moved and the lock began to open on its own. Can you imagine? No key needed. And you just heard the lock go. And then all of a sudden the door just opens of its own accord. Nobody pushing it. It is. And Peter walks out of prison that night delivered by the power of God. Now here, here's what I want you to see. There's something very interesting to me. God sent Peter, or that angel came to Peter on a particular assignment. And that was to get him free on execution night. Once he fulfilled that purpose, he did not tell Peter the next step. He didn't tell Peter to go where to go from there. He didn't give him a Bible study. He just went on his assignment. He fulfilled his assignment to the letter and he did not add to his assignment or take away from it. Didn't give Peter any further instructions. Peter's free and boom, he's gone just like that. He comes, fulfills his assignment, boom, he doesn't linger. He doesn't hang around. He doesn't sit down and drink coffee with Peter. He doesn't talk to him about what's going to happen tomorrow. He doesn't tell him where to go. He just does his assignment and boom, he's gone. He does not linger. Some of you who say you've got angels that come and sit down and drink coffee with you in the morning and you all have a talk, um, come see me after church. <laughs> They come, they fulfill their assignment, they do not linger, and boom, they're gone. They don't add to anything. His assignment was to free Peter. James has been killed by the, and so by the sovereignty of God, James is allowed to die. By the sovereignty of God, Peter is allowed to live. Why are you sleeping so soundly, Peter? Why could you do that? Number one, because I'm trusting in the sovereignty of God. He's in control. I told you the Lord was in control when, Pete, when James died. How do you know, Pastor? Because God got Peter out of prison. If he chose to, he could have got James out of, out of the situation. But he didn't choose to. He was in control the whole time. Give the Lord praise. Oh, friend, you see, there's a, there's a crisis in the church here. Peter is set free by the sovereignty of God. You know what was going on during that night? You know what? What was the church doing that was free? What was the free church doing? Praying through the night for Peter. They had an all-night prayer meeting. The ch I'm telling you, the church was in a crisis. Their apostles are being killed by the enemy. But God is still in control. That's what He wants you to see here. I'm still in control. Herod, Herod Agrippa is not in control. I'm in control. I'll get my Peter, I'll get my uh, Apostle Peter out of this prison, but I'll let my James die. I'm still in control. Give the Lord some praise. The church is praying all night. They can't afford to lose another leader, especially this kind of general. This general, not a private, not a sergeant, sergeant, but a general in the kingdom. We can't afford to lose this general. And so they started praying. They prayed through the night. And once Peter get, is set free, he's out in the open street. You know where he goes? The angel didn't tell him to go there, but he goes to the church. He goes to Mary, John Mark's mother, who is Barnabas' sister, 
Barnabas is John Mark's uncle. Barnabas is Mary's brother. And John Mark's mother's name is Mary. And that's where they're having the prayer meeting. And they're praying all night. And they're praying for Peter, you know. And, and Mary, John Mark's mother's home. Uh, and here comes Peter. Knocking on the front door. The angel didn't tell him to go. Peter, by common sense, knew where to go. In a time of persecution, I'm going to the church. And when he got there at that door, Mary, Mary's house, John Mark's house, Paul was there. And Barnabas was there. Just recently having come down from the Gentile worlds to bring an offering to Jerusalem. Read Galatians 2. The leadership was in that house. Saul was in that house. Barnabas was in that house. And Peter starts knocking on the door. And here comes Rhoda. Rhoda, possibly a servant girl. Rhoda, she's in the church. Rhoda walks up there. She can't believe her eyes. They've been praying for Peter's deliverance and Peter's standing right out the front door. Supernaturally delivered. And she runs back in the house and leaves Peter standing at the gate. I will tell you this. The church was not in unbelief. The church was simply uncertain. What I mean by that is I could preach, we could preach and say, well, look, Peter got out of the prison house, but when he got to the church, he had a hard time getting in the church than he did getting out of prison. The church wouldn't let him in. Rhoda runs back in and says, Peter's at the gate. Why don't you let him in, Rhoda? Peter's at the gate. Not because they were full of unbelief, they were just uncertain. Why? Because in that culture, they believe when a man died, his spirit roamed around for three days. And they thought the spirit of Peter was standing at the door. Did you hear what I said? They thought the man was dead. They thought his spirit was standing at the door. Well, he's gone. It's too late. Stop the prayer room. Stop the prayer meeting. He's dead. They executed him. No, it's Peter. Not just his spirit. It's Peter in his body. Peter's still alive. I tell you, the church wasn't in unbelief. The church was uncertain. They didn't know who was standing. Was it his spirit or was that it really Peter? Amen. Either way you look at it, sometimes when the church is praying, oh God, would you move this and God, would you do that? And all of a sudden the answer comes and you won't let the answer in the door because you can't believe God heard your prayer. And you're totally shocked that God heard your prayer. Well, they finally let Peter in. Thank God. Finally let him in the church. Amen. And he starts telling them how God delivered him from the hand of Herod. Hallelujah to the Lamb. He said, God delivered me from the hand of Herod. Herod's not in control. Herod's not in charge. God is in charge. God is in control. God has delivered me from the hand of Herod. Wow. 
Say praise the Lord. Thank God Peter kept knocking. Verse 16. Peter continued knocking and when they had opened the door, saw him, they were astonished. But he beckoned unto them with a hand to hold their peace, declared unto them, How the Lord, say the Lord. This is the key, the Lord. Herod's not in charge. Herod is not the Lord. Herod is not in control. The Lord is. The Lord was in control when James was allowed to die. The Lord was in control when that wicked man beheaded him. The Lord was in control. And the same Lord in His sovereignty that allowed that apostle to die is the same one that's in control that got me out of prison. You see that? That's the point. He was in control the whole time. It wasn't Herod. It wasn't Herod. Say praise the Lord. He said, go show these things unto James and to the brethren. He departed and went into another place. I believe at that time, right there, this is where, if you read Galatians chapter 2, that this is when Peter, the Apostle Paul in that house, goes along, gets Peter by the arm, drags him to another room, and sits down with him. And they share gospels to make sure that the revelation that Paul had was the same one that Peter had. You read Galatians chapter 2. At this point, Herod, I mean, uh, Peter goes underground for a while. So I want you to see this. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. And you can't explain why God would deliver one this way from prison, but not deliver James from prison. James is an apostle. Peter is an apostle. One dies. One is set free. That is the sovereignty of God. And you will never be able to understand it. You have to trust it. Why would God allow this to happen? See, some of y'all, it's always about you all the time. I mean, your whole world is about you. I'm not... I'm not It's all about you. Your whole world is about you. So you say, why would God allow this to happen to me? Sometimes you'll never get that answer. You're just going to have to trust God. And if you're, listen, if you're dead, if you die, you die in Christ. And you die full of hope. Nobody dies like a believer. Don't die like an unbeliever. Die like a believer. Singing the praises of God. Testimony of a man recently was sharing me. His mother was concerned about where she was going to go. She knew she was limited in time on earth. She was concerned about where she was going to go. Worried, worried, worried. Wouldn't sleep at night. Couldn't sleep at night. So worried she was going to die and go to hell. And the man that shared this Testimony with me said, I believe it was his brother was staying with her at night. And she started saying, did you see that? Speaking to her son. Did you see that? Did you hear that? It's the most beautiful, beautiful song. And she's screaming this on her deathbed to her son. 
after she, after I, based on the testimony I heard, after she heard and saw the vision that she saw, she no longer worried about it. And she died. But she didn't die full of fear. She was ready to go. I, I, I'm not going to pass judgment on that. I'm not going to say if she's ready to go, but based on the testimony, she died feeling she was ready to go. Say amen. amen. You know the Puritans had a saying? In connection to the sovereignty of God, the Puritans had a saying, be packed and ready to go at all times. Because you don't know if today is your final hour. I don't care if you're a preacher, pastor, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, or saint, whatever you are, or even unbeliever today. Listen to the words of the old Puritan preachers. Because you do not know when you're going to go. Be packed and ready to go. Are you packed and ready to go right now? Are you born again of the water and the Spirit? Are you baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost? Living a holy, godly life? Are you packed and ready to go? You need to be packed and ready to go. Because you don't have a promise you're going to live a long life. You could die before the prime of your life is over. Be packed and ready to go, preacher. Be packed and ready to go, apostle. Be packed and ready to go, whoever you are in the church today. God could have brought you here this morning to give you your final opportunity to be packed and ready to go. How many people say, I got tomorrow, I got a month or a year, I got the rest of my life to get ready. Be packed and ready to go. Because if an apostle can be allowed to go out into eternity. Probably not even 40 years of age when he passed. If an apostle went out in eternity, what's keeping you and I from going out in eternity? Be packed and ready to go. Give God praise. And be thankful. And know that God is in control. God is in control. God is in charge. Are y'all thankful today because you know that? Trust in the sovereignty of God. Try, you, you sit around, you try to figure everything out. It's all about you, all about you. Why, why, why? You're wasting your time. You're going to lose your mind. I don't know why things have happened to this church the way they've happened. But I sit around, and, and I'll be honest with you at times, I'm just bewildered by it. But I have to be packed and ready to go. Say amen. amen. How many of y'all love the Lord today and know He's in control? He could, he could have got James out just like he got Peter, but it wasn't His sovereign. It wasn't His will. And I don't know ultimately what that purpose and will was, but I know that He was in charge of it. And they were full of hope. And when they died, they went straight in the arms of Jesus Christ. That's the way they died. Ooh, that's the way I want to live. Listen, if you... If you're ready to die, you'll sleep like Peter. If you're not ready to die, you won't sleep like Peter. I'll say if you're ready to die, then you're really ready to live. Because it's only when you're ready to die are you really ready to live. Are you ready to die today? If today was it? If you're ready to die today, then you have just begun to really be ready to live.
If you're not ready to die, you're not ready to live. I'm coming too close. God is in control. The church is in a crisis. God is in control. He goes underground. Verse 17. Verse 18. Now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers that was what was become of Peter. Those guys, where'd he go? What happened to him? He disappeared again. He's the invisible man. I mean, we... There's no small stir, not just because Peter's gone. They know they're fixing to die. Because of Justinian law. Justinian law says, the guard that's watching over the prisoner that's going to face execution, if that prisoner escapes who would be executed, the guard that's watching over the prisoner, according to Justinian law, takes his place. And they knew it. And so all six of all sixteen of them were led away to be executed. I'll tell you what, if I was one of them Roman soldiers and Herod wanted me to guard Peter, I'd say, um, I'm taking vacation. I, I'm, my sick day, yeah, I'm sick. Wait, you were doing well just a minute ago. I'm sick. Why are you sick? You're doing, I'm sick. How about you? <laughs> they were put to death, verse 19. He went down from Judea to Caesarea and their abode. Hey, you know, Herod at this point says, I got to get out of town. Can you imagine the shame that's on this man? He's already put an execution date for Peter and Peter's nowhere to be found. I mean, this guy's embarrassed. He's extremely embarrassed because he thought he was in charge. He thinks he's God. He thinks he's in control. But the Lord sent an angel and set him free. Set Peter free. Embarrassed, he goes up to the coast of Caesarea, a Palestinian, not Caesarea Philippi, but the coast of Caesarea. Got to get away from that. He goes there to dwell there. Are y'all with me here? I'm almost done, I promise you. He went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode, verse 19. The word abode means to get away. He didn't just go stay there. He went there to get away from the embarrassment. He went to get away from the whole situation. How many of y'all ever been there? i got to get away, man. This situation. That's, he, that's where he is. I've got, he's, I've got to get away from this. So he goes over to Caesarea and he's as mad as he can be. He's going to take it out on Tyre and Sidon, coastal cities up the coast of Caesarea. He's going to take it out on them. I mean, he is as mad as he can be. How could this be? I thought I was in control. You found out you weren't. You found out that God was. The whole time. Verse 20, Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon. But they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. You know, he's over there throwing his little temper tantrum. He's feeling sorry for himself. He didn't get his way. 
He's taking it out on Tyre and Sidon. They're trying to make peace because they need food. The Bible says, now watch, here we go. Here's the close. And upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, set upon his throne, and made an oration unto them. Josephus says he had a garment that had silver threads running through it. And he said when he walked out and the sun hit that garment, it radiated with splendor. Can you imagine he's walking in his house and everybody's making sure he's got his suit on just right and the link's right and all this and silver threads running through his garment and he looks at himself at the mirror and you sure are a good looking guy. No, I'm, I'm being real with you here. <laughs> and the people working with him, you know, man, you're looking good today, King. Yeah, you're handsome, boy. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that garment, man. Woo. Man, you're something else. God let him put on his apparel. God let him write his speech. God let him look at himself in the mirror that morning. God let his servants dress him to the tea. God let him walk out and sit down on his throne. God let him begin to give his oration, his speech. The sun radiating off of his garments. And the Bible says, as he begins to give his speech, the people gave shout, saying, it is the voice of a God and not of a man. That's what he thought. He thought he was in control. And the Bible said the Lord sent his angel and smote Herod. And he died of worms. God sent his angel. See, God allowed him to do everything I told you. But when they started claiming that he was God, God said, that's it. You're taking it too far now. That's it. You refuse to give God the glory and you'll let them praise you and call you God. God said, that's it. You're dead. You're dead. You killed an apostle. You killed a disciple. You tried to imprison Peter. And now you let them claim you to be God. You're dead. God sent His angel. It wasn't the devil. God sent His angel. Killed him. You study the historical writings behind this. Josephus says that for five days those worms inside of his body. By the way, this word worm here in the text goes back to where Jesus said, Hell is like this. Hell is a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. You don't want to go to hell where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. The Scripture says the worms begin to eat at Him. Same worms. Eating in His physical body before He died. Those same worms would eat His body after death in the lake of fire. Now with me? And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory. He was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. 
Josephus says for five days he entered into the most excruciating pain that his servants had ever seen in their life. The bones, the worms literally eaten the inside. The worms. God, by his angel, put that worm in him. And that those worms, they said, Josephus says that the worms are eating the inside of his body. He gave off the most foul stench. He said it was so foul of a stench that the servants could not stand to be in his room very long. Died in excruciating pain after five days of the worms eating his, eating his entrails. Where's this man today? He's in the lake of fire. He's in a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. You thought you were in charge. God says, no, I was in control the whole time. Church, God is letting you know that God is in control the whole time. When James died and Peter was released, and when that wicked man killed him, God said, I'm telling you, I'm in control. This man's dead. This man's dead, Peter's free, and the Word of God multiplied. The worms eat this man's body, but the Word of God goes on. He, his rampage is over. His rampage is over. God is in control. He's dead, but the Word of God is growing and multiplying. You try to stop the church. You just try to stop the church. You, that's what God's showing you. You try to stop the church by persecution. You try to kill its pastors. You try to kill its apostles. But the Word of God is going to grow and it's going to multiply. You can look in China. And you know, we've been to Taiwan. The missionary Brother Edmund's over there. We've been there with him. And they go over to China. That underground church that's over there today suffer tremendously. But every time they kill one of the leaders or every time they kill somebody in the church, massive persecution hits the church in China. Guess what happens? The church grows. You try to do one thing against the church of the living God. When you're dead, the church is going to keep on growing. Give the Lord praise. You can quit the church. You can get mad at the church. You can get mad at God. But guess what? When you die and go to hell, the church is going to continue to grow. The Word of God is going to multiply. You can't stop the church. Isn't that beautiful? God is saying, I'm in control. And so at this point, the greatest evangelism or missionary endeavor takes place in the background of this. And the Bible in the 13th chapter gives us five different cultures, men, five men named from five different cultures. Barnabas, a Jew, a couple of men from Africa, black in skin, another man who was a foster brother of Herod Antipas in the church, and Saul of Tarsus, a Hellenistic Jew, all in Antioch, and multiple uh, diversity of culture. And there's fixing to be a missionary endeavor out of Antioch. And God says, send Saul and Barnabas to the mission field. They set them apart, lay hands on them, and send them forth 
to missionary the world from Antioch. God's saying, I'm in control. I'm in control. I'm in control. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. I don't know what's going to happen to you. I don't know what's going to happen to me. But I can guarantee you that the church is going on and the Word of God is going to multiply and it's going to grow. And I would to God that some of you were missionaries. We, I would love, and as I come to a close, I would love for some of you to someday when you mature to that degree and that level, notice they didn't just pick somebody in the church, they picked the top ones, Paul and Barnabas, to send them forth. Would to God that someday there's some of you who mature to the point in Christ that you could be a missionary. I don't know what God, maybe God's called some of you to Asia. Maybe God has called some of you to Mexico. Maybe God has called some of you to Africa or Egypt. I don't know. But would to God that someday our church was big enough. We support Brother Edmonds in Taiwan. But someday I would love to see missionaries come right out of this church. And this church be big enough to support people we know that came out of this house on the mission field. Give God praise. Would to God it would not just be Odessa, Texas, and Midland or the United States of America that we affect, but some of y'all called to the mission field. And we could bring you forth and the Spirit of God says, send them forth! And we lay hands on you. And as a church, we send you forth along with the Holy Ghost and we support you while you work in the mission field. Can you do that, Pastor? It's God's church. It's God's work. That's exactly what they did that day. Hallelujah. Let me just tell you in closing, the church work is not a small vision. The church work in the book of Acts is a huge vision. It's worldwide. They knew the vision of God, Jesus Christ. Acts 1 and 8. You shall receive power of the Holy Ghost to come upon you. You shall be witnessing Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the innermost part of the world. You are going to be wind-powered. Wind-powered. The Spirit of God is going to empower you. And you're missionary of the world. I pray to God someday some of you have that call. And the Holy Ghost will speak. I pray. Set them apart for the work I've called them to do. Hallelujah to the Lamb. He's got a huge vision for His church. Do you realize, and I, this is my last statement to you, do you realize that every day with every generation is the possibility of the extinction of the church. With every generation, the possibility of the extinction of the church exists. Because the church is not made up of children that are birthed physically. The church is made up of people who are born again of the water and the Spirit. So if we don't disciple the world, if we don't evangelize the world, if we don't missionary the world, the church will go out in extinction after one generation. You are producing the next generation of followers of Jesus Christ. And every time somebody walks through the doors of this church, this pastor standing up and I'm preaching the gospel. There are some of you here today that are not saved. I'm preaching the gospel to you right now and telling you how 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I am preaching the Gospel to you today to tell you how to be saved. Not just the missionaries on the mission field, but every time somebody comes in here. That's why I keep preaching the Gospel. Why do you keep preaching to this church the oneness of God, Pastor? I have generations that I have to reach. Why do you keep preaching Jesus' name, baptism, and the, and the infant of the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues? We believe it. We know that there are some who have not yet experienced this gospel. So every time they come through the doors, every time you come through the doors, I'm preaching the gospel so you can be saved. So our children can be saved. Because the next generation that comes could see the extinction of the church. I don't know if you've ever ever brought that to your thinking before. That's why I thank God for you. I thank God for this church. You're raising your children up, not just physically, but you're raising them up in the ways of God. You're showing them how to be saved. And then they will teach their generation that follows them. And that generation, if Jesus doesn't come back, will teach the next generation. And by the new birth, multitudes of people will come into the church. Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. God has no small vision for His church. Trust Him. Trust Him. No matter what happens, trust Him. Be faithful. He's in control. Lord, I thank You today for every individual that has come to this house this morning to hear the Word of God. Lord, I know and You know that I do not have the eloquence of speech to touch the heart of any man or any woman. Lord, by Your Spirit, draw them into Your kingdom. 